BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Who were William Petty's bastards? And why were the Germans so afraid of them? Well, with very good reason. Not for nothing did this band of tough-nut American rangers refer to themselves as the Bastards. Welcome to Season 3 of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I'm your host, Giles Milton, and today we're talking about the mission of the American rangers to capture the big German guns at Pointe du Hoc. Pointe du Hoc on the coast of Normandy is a vertical cliff that looms skywards to the height of a nine-storey building. From here, there's a spectacular view across the Normandy beaches. In the spring of 1944, the Germans were quick to realise that if you placed big guns on the top of these cliffs, you could cause absolute mayhem by firing down on men attempting to land on those beaches. To this end, they'd installed six 155mm cannon that could lob huge shells a distance of 25,000 metres. They could hit both Utah Beach and Omaha Beach, as well as the cruisers and destroyers at anchor in the coastal waters. It was clear to the Allied planners of D-Day that the big guns of Pointe du Hoc had to be taken out. But how and by whom? Cometh the hour cometh the man. James Rudder was to lead an attack that would be spearheaded by a small band of specially trained rangers. Theirs was to be no conventional attack. Instead of attacking from the land as the Germans were expecting, Rudder decided instead to scale the cliffs of Pointe du Hoc and attack the guns head on. It was a crazy plan, bold, daring and all but impossible. But Rudder felt sure that if he had the right men and trained them to within an inch of their lives, then he would succeed. He wanted only the finest men in his battalion, and he selected them for their stamina and motivation. His chosen band could come from any walk of life, just so long as they were prepared to fight to the death. Many of Rudder's recruits were unruly misfits. Merrill Stinetti was a firebrand who was forever getting into fights. He'd as soon as knock you off the barstool if you looked him wrong, said one of his mates, Herman Stein. I was sitting right next to him when he cold-cocked a guy. Bill Anderson was another hulk of downright blood and guts who'd been demoted from sergeant to private after a fistfight. William Petty was similarly violent. He soon fell in with a gang of hotheads like himself, Bill Colden, Gene Versher, Bill Coldsmith and Bill McHugh. Collectively, they were known as Petty's Bastards. They were determined to prove that they could be real bastards, absolute bastards, on the field of battle. As the men leapt from their landing craft into thigh-deep water, some of them tumbled into craters so deep that they found themselves plunged underwater. Getting ashore was only the first step in a highly dangerous operation. They now had to scale the cliffs. One of the rangers' greatest problems in those opening minutes of combat came when their amphibious vehicles were unable to get a purchase on the shingle beach. It meant that the 80-foot extending ladders loaned by the London Fire Brigade and welded securely to the decks could not reach the cliff top. 
This technical drawback did nothing to deter one of Rudder's more acrobatic men, William Stuyvesant, who hoisted one of the ladders vertically into the sky and then scampered to the top. He was completely unfazed by the fact that the ladder was swinging back and forth like a precarious trapeze as the amphibious vehicle bucked and kicked in the heavy swell. In the brief seconds when the ladder was upright, Stuyvesant would straighten his machine gun and fire short bursts as he passed over the edge of the cliff. Seconds later, he'd wrap his arms around the rungs of the ladder as it plunged back towards the water. With the extending ladders out of action, the men were forced to rely on their rope and steel grapnels. These were fired from rocket guns that had been designed to embed themselves in the clifftop and leave a trail of rope dangling down to the beach. That at least, was the theory. In reality, most of the ropes were too sodden with spray and therefore too heavy to reach the clifftop. Very few of the grapnels buried themselves into the wet clay at the top of Pointe du Hoc. William Petty was about to scale one of the dangling ropes when a German machine gun began spitting bullets at his comrade halfway up the cliff. He stiffened and swung out. Next, he slid down the rope like an elevator, bounced several times against ledges before thumping onto the rocks below. Now, it was Petty's turn. He grabbed the greasy rope and started to climb, praying that the machine gun fire wouldn't hit him. The men could easily have been wiped out there and then, but fabulous training and a determination to succeed saw the first few men successfully scale the cliff. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's go! I don't know what to do. Mac, you and Cold Smith take the left flank. Colden, you take the right and move out. Petty's bastards were soon on the move, hungry for action. Petty himself was keeping a sharp eye on the German positions. There come seven of the bastards! They all let rip and watched them drop to the ground. The few Germans they captured alive would live to regret it. All right, let's see you bastards goose-step, yelled one to a small group of captives he was tormenting. Ein, zwei, drei! The chewed-up terrain meant it was impossible to undertake a coherent attack, and the assault soon broke down into a series of individual firefights. Each platoon had been given an objective. Now, even when separated, they tried to fulfil their goal of capturing and securing the clifftop. James Rudder had established his command post in a crater close to the cliff edge. He'd been shot through the leg, but refused to let it trouble him. He ordered the medic to run a swab through the hole, excruciatingly painful without anaesthetic, and then sluice some iodine onto the raw flesh. His men were by now under fire from every direction, and not just from the Germans. When the American ship Texas fired towards the land, one of its 14-inch shells landed smack on Rudder's command post. One of his men was so seriously injured in the blast that he died soon after. 
Others were left clutching their heads as they reeled from the shock. Jerking with terror, they found their skin had been dyed bright yellow from the smoke of the coloured shell. William Petty and his bastards fought their way through the German trenches, clearing them one by one. One of them took a bullet in the throat. The blood was gushing out of him, said Hermann Stein. He thumped his fist into the gaping hole, trying to stop the flow of blood. But that high pressure of his was pumping like mad. It took just a couple of minutes for him to die. His eyes opened in a glassy, faraway look, and I knew he was gone. When the rangers finally reached the gun emplacements, they found, to their surprise, that the guns were not there. The Germans had taken them out and hidden them, and the hunt was now on to find them. It was essential that the rangers locate the guns and destroy them. Among the group that pushed in land away from the clifftop was William Petty and his bastards. Petty himself took up position behind a low wall with a view over a sweep of the main road that ran along the coast. At one point, eight Germans swung by on bicycles. Petty opened up on them. Almost like going duck hunting, he said with a grin. The ranger Leonard Lommel was convinced that the Germans had concealed their big guns in order to safeguard them from the Allied aerial bombardment. Now, he and his platoon sergeant, Jack Kahn, decided to scout barns, outhouses and orchards to see if they could find them. It wasn't long before they came across a sunken road with deep track marks in the mud. And then came the jackpot. Here they are, Lommel shouted over to Kahn. He chanced upon the very guns they were tasked with destroying. Concealed in an orchard and half camouflaged by trees, they were huge, far bigger than Lommel was expecting. The wheels went up over our heads. Their muzzles went way up in the air above our reach. Alarmingly, they were all pointing towards Utah Beach, some eight miles away. Their positions were textbook ready. Jack handed over his thermite grenade. It was the perfect weapon for sabotage, totally silent on detonation, yet releasing such a furnace of heat that it would turn steel to liquid. You cover me. I'm going in there. I'm destroying them. Lommel crawled forward and lodged the thermite grenades into the traversing mechanism of two of the cannons. This would melt them and render them useless. He then smashed the sights on the remaining guns before signalling to Khan that they should return to the roadblock and collect the rest of the thermite grenades. This they duly did. We stuffed them in our jackets and we rushed back and we put the thermite grenades as many as we could in traversing mechanisms and elevating mechanisms. When they detonated, they turned everything to a gooey mess of molten steel, guns, cranks, hinges and breech blocks. It was work well done. Hurry up, Len! Khan was getting increasingly concerned about being spotted by the Germans. Hurry up! Hurry up! Let's get the hell out of here! They'd just started making their escape when there was an explosion of such staggering force that the blast lifted them from the ground and hurled them into the sunken lane. We went flying and ramrods, rocks, dust, and everything came down on us. Shaking with fear, they picked themselves up and ran like two scared rabbits as fast as we'd go back to our men at the roadblock. They assumed that a nearby ammunition dump had been hit by a stray shell from the Texas. In fact, the explosion was the work of their fellow rangers. Sergeant Frank Rapinski had stumbled across the dump while looking for the guns and blown it sky high with explosive charges. The resulting blast had destroyed absolutely everything, including a sizeable chunk of field. When James Rudder received word that the guns had been destroyed, he sent a message to the ships offshore. Located Pointuok, mission accomplished, need ammunition and reinforcements, many casualties. It was an hour before he received a reply. No reinforcements available. 
All his fellow rangers had been diverted to Omaha Beach, and Rudder's men were now on their own, surrounded and under siege. Even Petty's bastards wondered how they would survive the rest of the day. This week's Unknown History Snippet takes up the story of the amphibious tanks and vehicles that were to play such a crucial role in supporting the first waves of infantry to land on the beaches. The amphibious tank attack was the result of an outlandish idea that came from the brain of an outlandish man, a maverick English genius named Sir Percy Cleghorn Stanley Hobart. He had the air of a circus conjurer, especially when wearing his berry and glasses, but he was equipped with a razor-sharp brain. His idea was for amphibious tanks to emerge from the sea just before the infantry, giving the German defenders a very nasty surprise. There was only one problem with Sir Percy Hobart's idea. Sherman tanks were built of reinforced steel. They weighed more than 30 tonnes. If you drop one in the water, it sank like lead. But Hobart developed a system by which they could be made to float, equipping them with an air-filled canvas sack that held enough air to keep them just above water. And this was not his only invention. He was to develop a whole series of specialist vehicles which were to become known as Hobart's Funnies because they looked so amusing. They included armoured bulldozers, flail tanks for blasting through minefields and vehicles to fill German anti-tank trenches. But the most famous of all was his amphibious tank known as the DD or Dupex Drive, popularly known as the Donald Duck. Hobart's vehicles were to be used on all five beaches on D-Day with varying success. On Omaha Beach, they were launched from too far out at sea and most of them sank in the heavy waves. But on gold and sword beaches, they proved invaluable. Hobart's funnies may have looked amusing, but they saved the lives of many Allied soldiers. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unknown History. In the next episode, we'll be meeting a colourful British aristocrat who is to play a vital role in the commando landings on Sword Beach. <laughs>